Picture yourself at the Thanksgiving table. Your cousin, who is a graduate student, is sitting at the table. Your older relative asks your cousin, So, what is it that you do all day in grad school? You see the light in their eyes leave, as if their soul is being sucked from their body. As a graduate student, I know this experience all too well. Figuring out how to explain what you as a graduate student does can be really tough. And that's in part due to the way that it's communicated. Even if you fully explain your exact job details, your older relative will probably still say, well, that's nice, and move on. My name is Louis Colabertolo, and I am riding the struggle bus of a PhD at the University of Guelph in the Food Science Department. I created this radio show to be an escape from the painful Thanksgiving dinner conversation. I sit down with current and recent graduate students in the science fields and have a casual, candid conversation about what they study. Instead of a lecture or a lengthy explanation, we're just going to have a chat. Today, I'm talking with Chris Von Aiken. If you were to search for Chris on any given weekday, you would have to go into the basement of a building which already looks like a dungeon. And deep in the cellar, there is a lab outfitted with computers that can't possibly be anything more recent than 1998. And at a desk there, you will find Chris. In fact, I was actually offered a desk in this dungeon, uh, but I was able to use my charm and good looks to get a different assignment. Chris is the definition of science in action. He works in extension, which is the application of science to the community. Now, Chris is going to take us from farm to fork help us understand jam versus jelly, and explain exactly why buying local food is so important. We are in the thick of our studies in grad school, and believe me, we do not know everything, which is why you are listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Doing well. How about yourself? I am holding it together over here. Could you do us all a favor and tell us about your educational background? Sure. So I graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 2017 with two bachelors. I had a bachelor in science, a bachelor of science in food science, and a bachelor of science in uh, sustainable food and farming. And I found that for me, it was really helpful. It's kind of trying to get a better idea of both where our food comes from, as well as what happens to food once it's been harvested, once it's been picked. But looking towards a little bit more of the processing side of things and seeing how it gets from the plant it's picked from to onto your plate. Uh, from there, uh, I took a couple of years off and worked a little bit. And then last year I started a master's program in the sustainability science field at UMass with a concentration in sustainable agriculture and food systems. And for me, this was a really good way of kind of connecting the two degrees that I had done to look at overarchingly kind of um, how the food affects people who are the ones that are growing and producing it, people who eat it and everyone affected by uh, the food around us. Yeah, so that's such an interesting topic, and, and we are going to really get into what you do. But when it comes down to it, from, from what you just told me, it sounds like so many hands go into food. And you know what? I will not lie. I've never really thought about the effects of food processing on the farmers or the producers themselves. So I'm super interested to hear about all of that. So could you quickly tell us what extension is? Sure. So I'm currently working with Cooperative Extension at UMass. And the, the, the idea of extension is uh, it's typically at larger land-grant universities. 
but it kind of uh, it's designed to bridge the gap between industry and academia. So in my role, I'm doing a lot of um, education, technical assistance, making resources, that sort of thing for uh, beginning food processors, entrepreneurs, people who are really either just started their own small food business or are looking to start their food business. And the idea is, is that while there are some resources with uh, government agencies or trade associations, there's really still kind of a, a lack of guidance where a lot of this audience doesn't quite know where to start. So where we come in is we try to work with this uh, group of people to help get them situated, whether it's in terms of some of the science aspects related to food or some of the regulatory components that they may need to follow. So who are your main clients? So mainly I work with small food processors. So uh, these are kind of, they can, they can come in a couple different forms. You might have your, you know, your jelly or jam makers that you might see at a farmer's market. Um, if there's a local farm that's looking to maybe do like uh, fresh salsa or hot sauces, or they're looking to start uh, making what's referred to as value-added products, which are where you take a, uh, what's called a raw agricultural commodity. So, you know, a tomato or a pepper or something that's just been picked and you process it in terms of adding some sort of value and have that make its way towards shelves. And value-added, it's really a, a very large um, umbrella, but it could be anything from like I said, jams and jellies, it could be dried fruit, salsas, sauces, just really any type of kind of processed foods that you would see on your shelves. So if I was a farmer and I grew tomatoes, why not just sell my tomatoes to the market instead of going through all the process of making a pasta sauce? Well, uh, in a larger scale, one thing that is challenging, particularly for um, smaller farmers and smaller producers, is the idea that their profit margins are very small. And there's uh, a theme that uh, often gets brought up, which is the idea of trying to diversify business operations with the idea that, you know, if, say, you're just selling wholesale, if for whatever reason wholesale prices are lower, you're going to take a larger business hit. But if you have, you know, you're selling some tomatoes straight to supermarkets and you have some tomatoes that you're selling as a sauce where you process it and you might be able to make a few more dollars uh, per pound of tomatoes or per jar of sauce. The idea is by having a more diverse business model, you're more likely to be able to weather hits or challenges that may arrive, which has been particularly important with some of the issues that have been happening with COVID right now. That is super interesting. So, so when a market goes down, they kind of have a fallback or at least another option that they can kind of sink their resources and their money into in order to uh, make sure that not too much is lost when we have these like strange, unprecedented events like we're having right now. Yeah, especially, so for example, um, farm to table has really been growing in popularity recently. Uh, but with COVID, one of the challenges that some farmers in our area have been having is that the restaurant industry just doesn't have the, the demand and the volume that they're typically expecting. So in a, in a, in a situation like this, being able to know that you know, while you might not be able to sell to restaurants, if you still have a diverse business structure, you can funnel that uh, amount of produce, hopefully to whether it's grocery stores or if there's a direct to consumer, if you say like a farm stand or sell at um, farmer's markets, being able to adapt to that quickly just helps with um, making sure that your business model is sustainable moving forward. Super cool. Uh, so now I, I got a I, personal professional question. I, I have a cousin that makes dog treats. I've been told that they're terrible, but if you're making these types of products, 
uh, that gets sold elsewhere and all these things. There's got to be like a lot of rules. You can't just make dog treats or jams or, or, or pickled green beans and just you know, put them on a shelf and say, like, okay, go have at it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, particularly when it comes to these types of regulations that are uh, food safety focused, it tends to get very challenging very quickly. And this is where we spend a lot of our efforts working with these entrepreneurs and these small businesses is trying to help them navigate where they fall within this food safety regulation. And one of the main challenges is that you can have, you know, state regulation that says certain things that they need to follow and also have government and federal regulation where they're, they might be similar, but there also might be differences. So all of a sudden, if you're a new entrepreneur wanting to start a food business, you have multiple sets of rules you have to follow and trying to figure out where you lie in that gets very challenging. So one thing that we spend a lot of time with is trying to take these regulations and almost uh, translate them so it comes out of being very regulation, policy, legal type jargon, for lack of the word I'm looking for, and try to make it more easily understandable for people who are just starting out and reading this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've looked at the you know health codes uh, that were you know outlined by the different food agencies that rule over the country, and honestly, it's hard for me to understand a lot of that stuff. So many technical subterm this, section that, paragraph this. I can only imagine that, you know, uh, for other people, that's got to be incredibly difficult. So what would you say is the hardest thing for people to learn? I think one of the biggest challenges is essentially if you have someone that's starting a food business, a lot of times they either fall into one of two categories once they start looking at all these regulations and everything that they're going to have to do to run a business. You, a lot of times you'll either get a group of people that once they see all of this, it's very overwhelming. You know, it's a lot more than they were expected, and sometimes this will be a deterrent, and they'll back out. And while you never want to, you know, crush anyone's dreams, not, you know, not to sound harsh, at the same time, it's important that people understand that there is a lot of uh, rules that they have to follow right at the beginning, so they don't go and put a second mortgage on their house or invest, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, and then realize it's not something that they really want to do. The other group, which is uh, the group that I'm happy to say we work a lot with is the group that sees all this regulation, is overwhelmed, but also still wants to keep moving and acknowledges that it is going to be a lot of work and a lot of hoops that they have to jump through, but are uh, both understanding of that and willing to take those next steps to make sure that they have a business that follows the regulations that are applicable while also creating the food that they want to create. So what is in it for these uh, uh, groups or, or authorities that you work for? Like, why does your boss want to do this? I would say so. I can speak on my own perspective. Uh, something, something I feel really strongly about is the idea of local food, both in terms of an agricultural setting of farms being able to be successful in our area both in terms of just that money circulating within the local economy, and also um, from an environmental standpoint, cutting down on what's known as uh, food miles, which is the term used to describe the amount of distance your food travels before it reaches your plate. And the problem with food miles is that all of that transportation releases you know, a lot of emissions that leads to some of the issues that we're having with global warming right now. But if you have lower food miles in your uh, purchasing food from producers that are local, that re reduces the impact that you have um, in your carbon footprint. So the idea for me is that both people having this ability to 
start their own business and be successful if that's what they want to do, as well as reducing the, those food miles. Those are two of the big things that I feel very strongly about while trying to work with this audience. Yeah, I mean, everyone has probably at some point heard like eat seasonally or, you know, you, you probably shouldn't be eating blueberries in the middle of December um, because those products sometimes come from the other side of the world. I know Argentina and a lot of South American countries provide a lot of our berries uh, in the <laughs> winter. And of course, they're more expensive because there's like a lot more traveling costs. But also, I, I live down the street from a farmer's market and uh, I go on in Saturday mornings, although they like close at noon. So I have to like set an alarm because I am not a, the kind of person that wakes up before noon. <laughs> um, so uh, I go there, but I'm a little bit deterred. I'm not going to lie because I know that the produce at my grocery store is a little bit cheaper. So why should I go to the farmer's market? Well, so one of the one of the actual uh, challenges with when you're talking about local food is that a lot of cases, the price points, price points are very similar between a grocery store and local. And there can be a lot of perception that local food is a lot more expensive or less affordable. But a lot of times, if you're thinking about it, the difference between paying, say, maybe two fifty per pound for a pound of tomatoes versus a dollar fifty per pound isn't ultimately going to be that much of a difference. But in terms of thinking about if you are buying direct from your farmer, that money is all going directly to the farmer. And as you uh, mentioned a little bit before, thinking about all the hands that are involved with our food, having that money go directly towards the person that's growing it and harvesting it is a lot more beneficial for the economy versus if you're buying from a grocery store, some of that money is going to the store. Uh, you have middlemen with transportations or warehouses, storage, and then you know, what ends up happening is that a very little amount of money actually trickles back to the farmers. And what ends up happening is it puts a lot of stress on the people that are growing these foods. And then if you have that lower amount that goes to the farmer, depending on what their setup is, particularly if it's a larger farm, the, the labor or the people that are harvesting end up getting even less money. And it can create some very difficult, to say the least, uh, working conditions. That is uh, super good to know. And honestly, I mean, I guess I didn't really think about it. My dollars at the grocery store are going to a senior vice president of this, an executive manager of that. And this money, this two, or I, I guess if we use your tomato example, this extra dollar a pound trickles, 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 trickles to the point that the farm hands and the farm owners are probably just getting a penny really from this extra dollar that I'm saving. So I think uh, that's a really good case to uh, buy local, go to your local farmer market, because I actually know one of the farmers, whereas I have no idea who the senior vice executive president of manager and sales incorporated is. Yeah, and this is by no means meant to knock or slander your, your local grocery stores. I mean, one nice thing that I've been seeing, at least uh, where I'm at, in terms of the rise of people looking more and more for local foods, is that our grocery stores have started to at least supply some of their produce more locally, which is a good thing, but you still have the same issue of it's adding a lot more areas where that money trickles out. Um, at the same time, I would argue that um, having a farmer's market or a farm stand down the street is a very nice privilege to have. So it's one of those things where, you know, if you are able to access food at a farmer's market or a farm store or a farm stand, that's great. But if you're not, you know, being able to still eat your produce, your berries is is really more important. So if that's your only option to grocery store, by, I'm not saying don't shop there by any means. 
but it's trying to figure out that balance between you know what is your budget or what food you have available to you that you can consume right absolutely i know the farmer's market's going to close eventually it is uh to say in the most lightest of terms cold in canada uh, so that farmer's market's not going to stay open forever and you are right a lot of people don't have the privilege to go to the farmer's market i don't even have to get on a bus it's like that close for me but uh for people who live much further out that's got to be really hard for them to get to uh markets like that and that really brings up a, a humongous issue of food insecurity which is definitely one of my uh, passion topics um, but when it comes down to it, we're helping out on the local level. Um, and I think that that is really the big pull towards uh, uh, shopping local is that we are giving families an opportunity to uh, really survive a little bit better through that. So help me out here a little bit. I want to know what your favorite value added product is. Ooh, that is a good one. Uh, so I would say in a larger sense, my favorite comfort food is definitely chips and salsa. Mm. And we have a, a farm in our area, a kitchen garden, which is in Sunderland, Massachusetts, that makes a absolutely fantastic uh, ready-to-eat uh, cold mix and pack salsa. So it's one of those fresh salsas. They grow the tomatoes, onions, peppers all on site, mix it together, and you can find it. They have it in a couple of the stores in our area. A lot of the farm stands will carry it. Um, it's just there's a lot of a lot of the farms in our area work together with each other to help supply or source different ingredients. But it's it's one of the best salsas I've had. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it definitely has to beat that, you know, out of the shelf kind of red goopy stuff that you find uh, at your grocery store. Mm -hmm. So now this is uh, definitely another question that I feel that the world needs to know. What is up with the trend with like punishingly hot hot sauces? That is something I find everywhere when it comes to the value-added products from farms. I, I honestly, I don't have an answer for you there. I will admit that my my heat tolerance for spices is very low. Uh, it's not something I grew up eating at all. Um, but I've gotten to a, a nice point where I can enjoy a good medium, yeah. and absolutely not a single drop more than that. Um, I, you know, I wish I knew. I feel like it's one of those things where people are just trying to outcompete each other for who has the the new spiciest or the new hottest. Yeah, and all the names, all the names of these products are like Atomic Death, Mega Spicy Volcano, Extreme Sauce. I guess you have to be a glutton for punishment in order to really enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's definitely, it's funny because it's if you look at the labeling of those hot sauces versus let's say um, different vegetable based or different like sauces or other types of products on, on the shelves are often looking for more natural, natural sounding labels or products where it's almost, uh, I don't want to say friendlier sounding labels, but you have like derived from nature or made with plant ingredients. And then on your other hand, like you said, you have your atomic fire hot sauce or like ghost. Uh, I know ghost pepper is one that gets used a lot, but it's just, it's a very funny, uh, definitely two different worlds there. Yeah, certainly. That's kind of that whole clean label movement. You know, the whole if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it kind of thing. Which, as a food scientist, I have a lot of comments on that. But that will be another show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole there. I'm not sure um, how the, Canadian's food, the Canada Food Inspection Agency handles some of that. But I know with 
our end on the U.S. FDA. Uh, that's something they've admitted is is a challenge in terms of defining and regulating the use of something like natural. So they they're just trying to come around to to doing that. But it's it's tough because everyone has a different definition of what is natural to them. And I think you you hit the topic perfectly where for you you're not as concerned about that idea of you know be able to pronounce it or know what it is if you look on it on an ingredient label. But if you are talking to other people they're going to have very different opinions. And food is one of those wonderful things where everyone is involved with it. So everyone has their opinions. Um, but where that opinion turns to fact is, uh, can be a large gray area for some people or some topics. Yeah, there is a whole host of opinions when it comes to food. And, and I think uh, kind of one of those take home points that, that you made that I want to just highlight was that there is no definition for natural. Um, but certainly if, if you are looking out for that sort of that natural field of things, uh, go into the local level, supporting those farmers at the farmer's market, you know, buying those value added products that are, you know, available sometimes seasonally at grocery stores, or sometimes they're available at uh, other venues. I know that sometimes like a, a coffee roaster near me will, uh, have like hot sauces on display that you can buy through that. So I love that kind of partnership mm -hmm. uh, for sure. So what can you tell us about uh, some of the great successes that you've seen? Uh, yeah, so um, the project that I've been working on most recently is we've been developing a training course for small food processors or people, like I said, who are looking to start their own businesses. And the idea is um, it's about a day and a half long. And what we did is we tried to take a lot of the scientific information that they would need to know, as well as some of the regulatory uh, type of, you know, where they fall within the regulation and really try to define it in a way that is easy to follow regardless of your background, um, whether you, you know, came from a food science or science background or if you came from a business background. But we took that and we really tried to break it down in a way that was easy enough for, to understand for this, this wide group of uh, audience that really comes from, like I said, just a lot of different backgrounds. And we've been piloting it. We were able to host a couple courses this past fall um, in person before COVID happened. But, you know, it's COVID has presented a lot of challenges. But in one sense, it was a positive for us is that we were able to take this course and find a way to run it virtually. So we now have it as a both a fully virtual course and we're working on currently developing a self-paced online course that um, people can take without an instructor. And we've had a lot of success in terms of uh, opening up different avenues for people to access this information. So instead of it just being something that we teach face-to-face, -face, there's now different ways that people can access this information, as well as we are currently, um, in about a month actually, we'll be hosting a Train the Trainer um, and spreading this curricula to colleagues of ours actually across the United States. So they could take this training and host it with the processors that they work with just as another way to try to make sure that people are getting that information that they need so they can be successful in starting their own food business. So that's really awesome. You're doing extension to farmers, but you're also doing extension to people who will be doing extension. Yeah. You're kind of like spreading out like a tree. I love it. And it's definitely, it's been, it's been really good on our side in terms of just a good practice because the information that we're teaching is the similar in terms of if we're teaching it to the audience that it's intended for, or we're teaching colleagues of ours how to teach it to this audience. But the way that the information is presented is 
very different. And it's been good because it's also given us a chance to look at this curricula that we developed and see, kind of almost try to poke holes in it a little bit and see, you know, is a certain topic were we a little bit too complex? Do we need to simplify it a little bit more? Kind of where that lays. And it's helped us make some edits to this training to make sure that it is as accessible as possible to this audience. And one thing that we found that's been very helpful is, you know, we, we developed this course. And it's, to our understanding as we went in, our, we thought it was a very simplified version. And as we started piloting it, we found out that parts of it worked really well and parts of it were still just far too complex. So that level of feedback that we were able to thankfully, or really thankfully had with the audiences that we began teaching it to, helped us shape it to make sure that this was a course that was really not just designed for these this audience of these small food processors, but also in a way designed by this audience to make sure it's fitting the needs that they have. That's great. You're, you're taking the feedback, you're making a better program for everyone to benefit from. That is just, that is science communication at, it's heart. I love it so much. So I go to the grocery store and I see there are so many products. There's jams, there's jellies, there's preserves. And I imagine if you're going to use a specific term, you have to have specific rules to follow it. Can you tell us what the difference between these products are? Yeah. So if you're looking at something like a jam or a jelly and a preserve, um, there are certain defined in the regulation, there are certain properties that they need to have to be considered that product. So for example, when you're talking about jellies, the idea is that it is all, the term is homogenous. So there's not pieces of fruit in there or anything else. It's just, you know, regardless of the spoon you take out, it's going to be the same every time. Um, there's also some regulations about what can and can't go in. So a lot of times um, it could be, you know, your, your fruit, sugar, pectin, which is used to help hold everything together so the jelly or the jam keeps its structure. And then sometimes there's certain types of like a little bit of a citric acid or something that can help change the acidity a little bit. And that's about it. So as you start getting into other types of similar products, so something, for example, like say an apple butter that is going to have some different ingredients in it, because those ingredients are added, it can't be considered a jam or a jelly. So it's really important to look at both what you're hoping your product is going to be, but also the ingredients you're hoping to use to kind of see almost like a checklist, right? So where is this product going to fall? Is it going to be a jam? Is it going to be a, a fruit preserve? And, you know, within that as well, there's a certain amount of uh, fruit or sugar that needs to be in these products as well. So depending on the amount of fruit or the amount of sugar, it's going to fall into different categories. Right. So I can't just, you know, uh, put a couple strawberries in and then fill the rest up with like strawberry flavored Kool-Aid and turn it into jam. There has to be a specific amount of fruit, a specific amount of sugar by the time it's all cooked. Um, otherwise, it won't be up to specs, so they can't sell that type of thing. And it's your job to get people to understand those specs? Yeah, so um, another good example with this, uh, this comes up in juice sometimes. So you might see something that says, um, cranberry juice is actually a perfect example of this. If you look at labels on a cranberry juice, a lot of times you'll see it's not just cranberry juice, but it might be listed as cranberry juice cocktail. And the reasoning behind that is it's not just cranberry juice because uh, since cranberry juice is so bitter, a lot of times it's mixed with like an apple juice or grape juice to make it a little bit uh, sweeter and just more enjoyable to taste. But at the same time, making sure that you are very specific as to what's in that. So if someone was looking for just straight cranberry juice, you're not uh, deceiving the customer or having them think the product is different than what it actually is. 
Yeah, I think cranberry juice, if you ever have the opportunity to have raw cranberry <laughs> juice, you are you are in for a world of pain. Your mouth is going to be all dry. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt, kids. Yeah, it's not definitely not something I'd recommend. But the idea is uh, a lot of times when it comes to food labeling, what the FDA uses as uh, kind of a guidelines is the idea of trying to not be what's considered false or misleading. With the idea is that you want to make sure what you're saying your product is, is the best definition of what that product is. So people know when they purchase it, whether it's a salsa, whether it's a jam, whether it's a jelly or some type of sauce, they have a better idea of what to ex expect. So that way they know what they're spending money on and they know that this is the, the product that they want to get. Yep, super important in order to have that kind of uh, regulation that puts everything together. So I know if I'm picking up a jar of jam, it is going to be a jar of jam and not jar of jelly or a marmalade. What's Do you know what a marmalade is? I, I believe like a marmalade has a little bit of butter or milk in it. Oh. But I'm not 100% okay. sure on that one. All right, yeah, sure. That, I mean, there's so many different like canned things out there. I don't want to... Uh, say that I know very much about preserved fruits. Yeah, it is not my strong point. So then what would you say is the hardest part of your job as an extension person? I would say from my perspective, a lot of it is coming down to making, to trying to attract, establish trust between us and the businesses we're working with. And particularly this can happen a lot of times it'll show itself when we're hosting training courses. Um, because from our standpoint, we hope that small food businesses are being uh, as candid as possible with the practices they're doing, because if they kind of give us the delay of their operation a little bit and let us know what they're doing to make sure the product is safe, we can try to help in terms of giving suggestions on, you know, whether these are the best practices or maybe we would recommend going in a slightly different direction. But it's challenging because um, sometimes um, these people, or these, these companies, they're a little bit concerned about saying something and having it be wrong. And understandably so, I definitely understand that it is a difficult relationship to navigate sometimes. But from our standpoint, our job is to educate. You know, we're not regulators, we're not inspectors, we're not going to, you know, judge. But the idea is that, you know, we can't help unless, uh, you know, you let us help. So trying to establish that trust and that understanding that we really we really mean well, we're not trying to tell you what to do. Uh, we're not the ones that make the regulation. And it's challenging because sometimes people will get frustrated with uh, the amount of uh, things that they have to do to comply. But at the end of the day, all that we're trying to do is help make sure that these businesses can be successful uh, and follow what they need to do to make sure that they're making the product that they want to make but it's also a product that is safe for the consumers that are buying. So by that uh, train of thought, you're not the jam police. You're not going to, you know, lure them over over a video conference and then like, pop them out and cite them for something. Exactly. Um, and it's uh, it is one of those things that it's definitely it's totally on a case to case basis. Sometimes we'll get um, people that are really receptive and open and want to meet with us and talk through the whole process and have us just kind of talk about whether it's ingredient sourcing or certain steps that they're taking and just kind of give our thoughts on all of it. Or you get people that are a little bit more closed off and it really is a spectrum. But at the same time, I'd say it's, it's almost rewarding in a sense where sometimes we host these training courses that happen over a couple of days. And as the courses go on, you get people that open up a little bit and a little bit. And that I would say is really 
the best way that we can see that what we're doing is making a difference. Um, and it uh, can be frustrating at times. And we groan about the regulation just as much as these processors do, I promise. But just being able to see that we are able to make some difference and actually help out the audience that we're, we're really trying to work with and help. Wow, super cool. So you really do put the two in farm two table. Yeah, and it's it's tough because depending on who we're talking to and what they're doing, the answers to what they should be doing are going to be very, very different. You know, the food safety considerations for a hot sauce are drastically different from the food safety considerations of someone who is doing, let's say, frozen fruit or just any type of product. There's so many differences. And I would say that one of the other hardest parts is that uh, making blanket statements or trying to make a training course that covers people that are making just types of food all the way across the spectrum is very challenging. And we can't always give the exact answer for what someone needs to do. And it's challenging because, I mean, if I'm putting myself in their shoes, I just want to know what I need to do to make a safe product, right? And unfortunately, it's not that simple. But, you know, if we can help kind of guide people in the right direction and help them understand the questions that they need to ask and have answered, that's, you know, really what our goal is. So then they can keep taking those next steps to prosper as a business. Awesome. I love it. You are out there, you are in the fields or, well, right now you're behind the computer screen, the <laughs> the, kit, the webcam, and you are giving people the tools that they need in order to diversify their income, become a little bit more financially stable, use their products up and really also bring us like delicious, unique foods that you would never really get from a major manufacturer. And I think that's like the best part about these products. Definitely. Yeah. We sometimes will host training courses and it'll be a multi-day. And at the end of the first day, we'll be talking with someone and they'll ask like, Hey, can I bring some of my product in tomorrow? Would you like to try it? And it's always oh, a yes. there's, there's <laughs> such, as you said, there's such a wide variety of types of new and interesting products people are making and seeing them and sampling them. It's just, it's exciting. We had someone at a course last December um, that was working with uh, cricket protein, so like bug protein, which uh, he did not bring in any samples because very early stages, but just something that is very, very new, very cutting edge. And there's not really many other people doing much else with that. But he was talking about just some of the, you know, you hear about impacts of raising cattle or growing meat in terms of it having a very big impact on the environment. And he was talking about how they are making a product that's similar in protein with a much, much smaller footprint, but also having to try to get people okay with the idea of eating bugs, which can be a bit of a challenge. But it just, it was a perfect example to me of something that is really new, something totally different that you wouldn't necessarily just find in your supermarket. And like, I would want to try it. So the idea is like, how can we help people get that really cool, really interesting idea and get moving so they can share it with Yeah, that is super cool. I can't wait to have like cricket flavored everything. <laughs> I think that, that would be a fun transition. Uh, I, I have to admit, I'm down for it as well. All right, do you have any closing thoughts, anything you want to get off your chest before we uh, close up? I would say if I can uh, step up on my, my soapbox here for a second. Do it. I would say really just, uh, we touched upon a little bit earlier, but where you can buy local if it's affordable, if it's something that's accessible to you, I would definitely recommend doing it. And there are so many challenges with buying local food, whether it's transportation to get to a farmer's market or being able to work that into 
a job schedule, and there are there are issues that can arise with that. Or by no means I'm saying local is the only way, but you know if you can, I really would recommend it. It helps a lot with the local economy and just getting to know the farmers that are growing your food. They work super hard, and margins are shrinking and getting tighter every year. So where you can, do what you can. All right. I love the take-home message. I feel like a better person. A lot of times I talk to like animal conservation people on the show and they just make me feel real bad about everything I'm doing. But Chris, you make me feel good. I'm going to go to the farmer's market tomorrow. I'm going to set my alarm because it's so early in the morning and I'm excited to uh, buy a little bit more local tomorrow. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us. Hope you have a good day. Thank you. You too. There you have it. Chris has walked us from farm to table, showing us what local produce does for local farmers and how they can turn their vegetables and fruits into value-added products. But now it is time for that part of the show on We Know Some Stuff to declare the fact that we don't know a lot of stuff. So it is fact check time. One thing that we did say in this episode that turns out to not be true was the definition of a marmalade. Turns out a marmalade is not a jam or jelly with added dairy product, as Chris mentioned. Turns out that it is actually a jam-like product made with citrus that includes the rind of the fruit uh, as pieces within the mixture. So that is a marmalade. Now, who Lady Marmalade is, is really outside of the scope of this radio show. So thank you for listening to we know some stuff.